Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Trina Ramsey from the Power Network, and I am so excited to be here for the second show of the Revolutionary Sisters of the Diaspora. We are a collection of black and brown women who talk about social justice issues, and today is our second show. The topic is push-outs, which basically means black and brown girls who get pushed out of the school system and into the the school-to-prison pipeline. So we have a very informative conversation to be had with you today. And if you are interested in joining the conversation, please give us a call at 619-924-0990. And now I'm going to the number is 619-924-0980. My apologies. And I'm going to turn the mic over to Ange, who will introduce more about what we do and why we do it. Thank you. Hello and uh, good evening, everyone. I uh, am so pleased that this is our second show. Our first show was about the wonderful First Lady, former First Lady, Michelle Obama. We had a lot of fun talking about her. And tonight we're going to get a little serious uh, and informative and talk about young black and brown girls being pushed out of the educational system and onto the track of prison. So we have with us tonight two wonderful uh, speakers who are experts in the field of juvenile justice, and our first uh, guest, or host, I should say, is Q. She is the lovable, huggable, angry black woman. I just also want to let you know that our shows are every third Thursday at 7 p.m., and the next show will be... Uh, called Under Siege, Regressive Immigration Tactics. As you know, we are under siege. We have uh, had many things that have come up lately with our number 45. Uh, When I say number 45, I'm referring to our president. And uh, we think that it's a very uh, opportune time to talk about immigration issues. So that will be our next show and that will be on March 16th at 7 p.m. So without further ado, I would like to turn the mic over to Q. Good evening, everyone. As Anch said, I am Q, the lovable, huggable, angry black woman, and I'm here to talk to you today because the struggle is real for our black and brown sisters who are suffering in the school-to-prison pipeline. I'm joined today by a wonderful practitioner, Liz Alexander, who both has her master's in social work, her master's in divinity, and has direct services experience working with girls in the school, um, in the juvenile justice system. But before Liz 
Liz and I engage in a little conversation, I want to take us someplace special. I want to take us to a place where we understand a little bit about why there is such a struggle for our black and brown sisters in the school system. And that takes us to a place of history. Now, whether we want to accept it or not, we have to understand the fact that there are things called racist tropes. There are implicit and explicit biases which define the way in which people of color and people who are not of color engage and interact with young black girls and young brown girls. And the way, the lens in which they view us can oftentimes fall into one of three tropes. And that is the asexual mammy, who is the caretaker. That is the Jezebel, which is the hypersexualized individual. Or that is the sapphire, the angry black woman. And that kind of portrayal of black and brown women manifests itself in the school system in all kinds of ways. It manifests itself in the way in which law enforcement engages with these young women in all kinds of ways. And so, even though I'm using a historical reference to describe the way in which people engage with young black girls and young brown girls, that has stretched across time, and there's actually new language that's evolved that still places these young girls into these boxes. And by placing them into these boxes, we're criminalizing behavior that, but for the fact that they're black and brown, would just be considered a part of adolescent development. And so to lead off the discussion with that, I'd like to ask Liz a little bit about how have you seen these racist tropes play out when you engage with girls who are involved in the juvenile justice system? And please introduce yourself also. I'm sorry, Liz. Also, I'd ask you to introduce yourself because I gave a quick and dirty summary of you, but I know and you know that you are way more fly than that, and the listeners on the radio need to know that also. You know what? I appreciate that. Um, And I'll also say, um, you know, I'm content with the down and dirty. Down and dirty is good. Um, But I'll I'll just only add that um, what brought me to this work was my own experience, was my my experience um, in Chicago doing juvenile justice advocacy work. And so um, some of that work required me to go into the prison. And um, there I saw girls. But what I found interesting, though, um, is that when I was at, uh, you know, advocacy tables or policy tables or tables, you know, uh, talking about prevention and intervention services, um, supportive services for girls were never mentioned. You know, and so I then began to ask the question, well, what about the girls? You know, especially, um, you know, after I, you know, began to learn about what what some of the um, driving factors um, that led girls into detention. So, like, for example, I know vividly uh, one time I visited the uh, Juvenile Temporary Detention Center in, in Chicago, and at that time all the girls who had been admitted were picked up for child sexual exploitation. Um, again, uh, you know, the, began asking the question, how do we first, you know, like how do we incarcerate girls who have been victimized and exploited? You know, and then how how then uh, have we come to the point where we see incarcerating them to be the most appropriate response to this victimization? So that then led me on to this to this incredible journey 
to really, um, you know, partner with folk who are already doing the work, um, such as Monique Morris, um, you know, and others to really, you know, really dig deep and say, look, our girls matter, right? And we really need to highlight these issues and, and uh, really expose, um, you know, their plight, you know, and then really, really uh, do some appropriate, um, effective uh, policies and services you know, to really support them and, and ultimately in the pipeline of girls into the juvenile justice system. So um, so that that's my journey in brief. But to answer your question, um, I really appreciate your um, social historical context in terms of beginning the conversation. And I, I really wanted to add in terms of the trope, in addition to what you've, what you've added, you know, I, I actually want to expand it. Note, without a shadow of a doubt, our girls and black girls in particular are objectified. And I mean, it's it, it's um and 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 they're othered, right? And so we see that through um, school to prison pipeline. We see it through um, implicit bias by teachers. We see it through um, having low standards of expectations for Black girls. We see it through um, under-resourced educational systems. We see it through material. I mean, we see it through several different um, measures. But I'll also say, in terms of the the trope, I would say uh, for Black girls it has even been expanded to include thoughts. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure, Q, you heard of, of thought, right, the, the, which stands right. for the so whole Liz, over there. Liz, be a dare and explain to everyone what a thought is. I know what a thought is, and you know what a thought is, but I'm not sure everyone who's listening may know what a thought is. Sure. So I would, I would consider a, a thought to really be under the sapphire umbrella. Uh, I'm sorry, and, and under the Jezebel umbrella of this whole hyperset girl. So thought is literally the the it stands for the whole over there, right? And it's really about again this objectification of black girl sexuality, um, of of black girls being promiscuous, of of black girls um, being really open for the taking, you know, in terms of of uh, being passed around, right? So I think it also uh, to um, like black girls being easy, and then then being uh, vilified um, for being viewed this way. Hopefully that was clear, right? And that so was see very how, clear. Okay, great. Because that also plays out when we talk about girls are responded to in school, and how that also leads to push out. So in addition to thought, I mean, Trap Queen, uh, you know, the, the what is that that guy, the song, I mean, that made that popular. Um, you know, but, uh, and, and I would say the Trap Queen really falls under the, the, the sapphire, angry black girl, but, like, it kind of, you know, also includes, like, this, this bad bitch, you know, um, label. But really, um, it has a lot of connotations in terms of, um, you know, like, black girls, really like handling drugs, handling money, you know, like being being boss bosses on the street, uh, really taking on these identities as, as like drug lords in a way. No, really that's great. A and of- thank you so much for sharing some of that. And for our listeners, I'd just like to remind you that if you have any questions for us, please feel free to call in at 619- Nine two four zero nine eight zero, and I want to dig in a little bit about the sexualization of young girls and how the trauma of that actually leads to their criminal behavior or criminalization of their behavior. So, for example, 
I'm sure you recall that last year in Texas there was a pool party where a young black girl was actually attacked by an adult white woman and smacked in the face, but the police, a police officer Mm -hmm. chose to victimize and traumatize this young lady, flip her on the ground while she's wearing a bikini, and put his knee in her back as if somehow her body itself has become weaponized and he needed to exercise dominion and control over that. And that often manifests itself in the classroom where we live in a dynamic where the majority of public school teachers are actually not people of color, not women of color, but they're white women who are in many ways feeding into the school-to-prison pipeline because they're they're navigating implicit and explicit biases that they may or may not be aware of. So in talking about that and in thinking about how the school-to-prison pipeline actually feeds girls into the system, what have you seen in terms of your work going into the juvenile facilities? What stories have you heard from young black and brown girls about how they've been treated by those those authority figures that are actually supposed to be protecting them but instead are actually visiting violence and harming them? Yeah, so definitely a lot of response that I get um, from girls is that, you know, they feel like they don't matter, right, like that they aren't heard or listened to and that they are not seen, right? And so, I mean, it's consistent. And so what I what I picked up from that is that, you know, these girls, black girls in particular, are really seen as other, you know, and then in, in the institutional context, I mean, in terms of school, they are literally dehumanized, right? And so, like, you gave those two examples, like the girl Shakira from South Carolina, you know, and that video went viral, how she was literally, you know, taken from her, um, thrown from her desk onto the ground, and, again, this black, I mean, this, this male body on top of hers, right, holding her, her down in this, in this very violent and aggressive way, right? And so, um, so, so yes, and I, so in terms of how girls feel, I mean, it's a, they feel like they don't matter. They feel like they have no value, you know. And it's and it's um, and they feel it from their teachers. And in terms of trauma, so just a little background with Shakira in particular, and then I'll go into like some background of some of the girls that I've encountered in my work. Um, I don't know if, if a lot of folks knew, but um, she was actually in in foster care. And I, I think at that time, okay. Great, right? So at that time, right, she was living in a group home. So just the stresses associated with that, right? And I meet girls who are who we consider, I mean, who we we term as crossover youth. That's that's the term here in New York. Uh, girls who are both who are in the justice system and who are also in child welfare, right? So so even when they leave incarceration, they don't they don't they don't go home. They back they go back into another system. And so some of the feelings that that they uh you know have conveyed that they feel again, not being wanted, right? Many of them are disconnected from family. And I'll also say what we, what we see in New York is kind of like a reversal. So, so for girls who may go into the justice system, um, when they, at the point of entry, right, they are leaving a family. But when it's time to go home, a lot of the times the families don't want them back in the home. So they go into, um, go into the child welfare system. So, uh, so, so again, feeling not feeling devalued, feeling other. Uh, feeling dehumanized, 
right, experiencing these this implicit bias from everybody, right, um, and, and, and it's, it's constantly perpetuated um, in school and in various, various institutions, in, in the incarceration system, I mean, in the juvenile justice system, um, in, in family court, et cetera. Um, Great. Thank you now, so much, Liz. If you give me one moment, I'm going to turn it over to Ange for a little bit because she's going to talk a little bit more about how trauma um, manifests itself and is criminalized as opposed to being treated in a more holistic manner. Yeah, so Liz, thank you very much for that, and, and I, I want you to continue talking about some of the cases that you, you've seen uh, there in New York. I can only imagine in New York. I'm from Brooklyn originally. Holla! And <laughs> Brooklyn in the house. <laughs> um, and I actually uh, moved away from Brooklyn when I was nine. I tell people a story. I left Brooklyn when I was nine. We forgive her. I um, <laughs> We moved across the country, and I... Uh, turned 10 uh, in Nevada. <laughs> That's how long it took us to get across the country. Um, but I did some work when I was, uh, when I first started doing uh, criminal justice work here in D.C. and did some work with Advancement Project and had gone down to Florida. Uh, and this is just an anecdotal story to talk about trauma. Uh, I moved in with my sisters when I was nine because my mother passed away. And my mm -hmm. mother was from another country, and she passed away. She was buried uh, in that country. And we went back to Brooklyn, and my whole life changed. Lucky, luckily for me, I had sisters, right, that were there, loving, supportive, uh, could guide and try to raise me. We went to um, court when I was working with Advancement Project in Florida, and I remember we were in juvenile court. We were just watching all of these young black and brown kids being brought in in orange jumpsuits, shackles on their ankles and on their hands. Mm -hmm. And one young lady was actually in regular clothes. She was standing in front of, standing next to her attorney and standing in front of the judge. And she, something had happened where her sister couldn't take care of her. Um, she just seemed to be not out of control because she wasn't out of control in court, but for whatever reason, her sister couldn't take care of her. And all I heard was the defense attorney saying, in your honor, her mother died. Mm -hmm. And I broke down because this girl was maybe 15 years old. She hadn't reached 16, so she was maybe 15 years old. And they were just talking about her like, she was just this thing, you know, just this right. object, and no one was taken into consideration the trauma that she must have been going through because her mother died. And I, all I could do was look at my supervisor, and she said, are you okay? And I said, no. I said, her mother died. I said, I don't know when her mother died. I don't know if it was before this situation happened, during, after, but her mother died, and they're not taking that into consideration. And so to me, Seeing that young girl standing there in front of the courtroom, all I could think about is myself. What if I had done something and my sisters couldn't take care of me and I had to deal with not only the trauma of losing my mother, but whatever else I was going through because of that trauma, uh, I ended up in the juvenile justice system standing in front of a, a judge who is going to render verdict on me 
that I may still end up in the system with no one to care for me. So it's just an anecdotal story, but it's it's really what goes on probably in more of these courts around the country than we even want to even think about. Um, she may not have been abused or anything. I know a lot of these kids are abused, but I just think that we as a society just need to do better by our kids. We really, we really do. Thank you so much for for sharing that story, Ange. I think that in many ways it is a perfect illustration of how the personal is political. Yeah. Your story, while it is personal, it, it illustrates so much of what young women are suffering through that no one actually takes the time to understand. So talking about trauma and talking about the different ways it manifests, some of the symptoms of trauma are depression, numbness, irritability, anger, feeling out of control, avoidance. These are all behaviors that young women often demonstrate when they're in school, but as opposed to recognizing it as a symptom of trauma, it is criminalized as behavior that is unacceptable, and so those in authority have to exercise dominion and control over them. And not to divorce the impact of implicit bias or race on this issue, there actually have been studies done that show those same judges that we just talked about in family court or the probation officers when they're writing their reports and they're describing the behavior of young children, when describing behaviors that illustrate irritability, anger, depression, anxiety, when it is a child who is white, it's seen as external factors that are causing that problem and they need help. But when it is a black child, a child of color, those same exact behaviors are described as something that's fundamentally wrong, some kind of intrinsic behavior to them that needs to be fixed in some capacity, that they need to be pulled out of society, hidden away, and then somehow trained or broken in order to conform to dynamics that don't actually matter to them because they're not being treated for the underlying trauma. They're being criminalized. And so you described that, Ange. Liz, you described that as young girls not being heard. Um, how else have you seen this manifest, um, Liz, when you're engaging with young people? So how do you see these symptoms of irritability and anger, these, these kinds of behaviors, which really are, you know, a larger description of the tropes that have come down over the centuries, right? Like Jezebel is, you know... She's all kinds of flighty, and she's hypersexualized, or sapphire is all kinds of irritable and angry. Those are still manifestations of trauma that they're trying to compartmentalize and put in a negative light so that they can exercise dominion and control over our body. So have you, how have you guys seen that manifest when you engage with young people um, in the courthouse or in the juvenile detention center? And I can speak to that also if necessary. But you go first, Liz. Sure, thank you. So, so um, a couple things. So, you know, when dealing with 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 children who have experienced trauma, um, many of them, um, especially children who come from uh, low re- low resource communities, um, families that don't really offer support, 
um, many of these children themselves don't know, and then the people around them don't know that these are actually symptoms of trauma, right? And so the way that young people, usually because they don't have the language, they act it out behaviorally. And so we're we're now, like now with, with more research, we're seeing now the impact of trauma on the brain, right, and how it affects adolescent development. And so how I, I've seen it, Chicago uh, doing violence prevention work in, in school, actually. Um, so I was at a particular school in the, on the west side of Chicago. Um, so just for context, I'm new to New York, but I've been in Chicago the last couple of years. Um, this is my first, first year in New York. Um, so, so while I was in Chicago, um, my, my job literally was to do family intervention work with children who were uh, exhibiting violent aggressive, and aggressive behaviors. And so our, um, our target population were uh, first graders and sixth graders. And so um, in doing the Wait, uh, intervention work. Wait, for one second, Liz. I'm sorry, I sure. want you to repeat that, that your target population were first graders and sixth graders. So exactly. when we're talking so about first, yes, so we're already dealing with the criminalization of young children as early as the first grade. Yes. You know, and I and, and we've you. already shown, we, we've seen reports even younger than that. I don't know if you all recall the story of the young girl, five years old, um, who was, I believe, I believe her case was in Florida, who was arrested for having a tantrum. Black girl. Yes, I do. I recall it quite yes. well. Yes. So, I mean, we're seeing it. We see it younger and younger. But, again, it's consistent uh, because who we see are black and brown children, particularly black girls. So that's consistent. But, but yeah, so in, in doing this, this uh, violence intervention work, uh, like these children were exhibiting a lot of aggressive behaviors or what will be described as, as, as aggressive behaviors, right? So being really disorderly uh, and, and having like an emotional um, oppositional defiant disorders, right? Um, so like being, um, it would look like, like being emotionally disturbed, right? Um, tantrums, um, being unconsolable, uh, uh, consistent interruptions, um, and then, in, in some cases, uh, damage to property. And so this looked like uh, that, and that's what it looked like for first graders. For sixth graders, it looked like, you know, maybe symptoms of ADHD. Um, it looked like uh, being a, a distraction. It looked like maybe falling asleep, unable to retain information, all of that stuff, right? And so um, in my role as a, as this uh doing this family intervention work, I then had to, right, I had to engage the family. So it required uh, me and my colleague to go do home visits. And I'm telling you, when I, when I went into some of these homes, I mean, before I go on, I just want to be clear, I'm not, I don't want to pathologize, you know, black children, black families, black communities, right? These were specific right, cases. Right, because there's nothing wrong um, with us. So I, right, so I just wanted to note that. But when I went into the homes, like one of the sixth graders who, you know, had all these, who were really uh, exhibiting all these behaviors, uh, his mother had a mental illness, and she was also in, a, in an abusive relationship. So he was primarily being cared for uh, by his grandfather, uh, who was, uh, had to be like 60. And so if you ask me, like, I don't, I don't, like, he was clearly an elder, and I, I personally think he didn't have the energy or the appropriate resources to properly care for this child, right? And so... So think of that, right? The child at home witnessing this abuse, having a mother who is uh, pretty inconsistent, inconsistent, emotionally neglectful, 
at times uh, psychologically and emotionally abusive, and then having an elder who, you know, low energy, not necessarily having the resources to take care of him. Um, and, and so imagine him experiencing that and then having to go to school. So how can he then be in a position to, to receive information? Right, similar to girls. Had a, had a girl um, in, a, in a similar situation, um, but her situation was, I mean, she, had, she was literally living in a home of, of extreme poverty. And I think we don't talk enough about how poverty is also a form of violence. And I mean, absolutely. The, Repeat that so that everyone can hear you again. How poverty is definitely a system of violence, and we know that yes. long, we studies out the impact that it has on psychological well-being, um, brain development, emotional development, um, just across the board, self-perception, all of that, and so resiliency, all of that. And so, in this particular home, I believe it was a two-family home. Um, if you go in, you you thought it was abandoned. Right, two family home. I believe it was probably about ten people living there, you know. And it was it was uh, it didn't have a lot of food. And at this at this particular school, in the counselor's office, not only did they have to be available to provide individual counseling, but they also had, you know, like um, like a closet of clothes, of underwear, of socks, of uniforms, of of, of school uniforms, right, of food, just because of some of the uh, poverty. Uh, severe poverty that these children were living in. So, again, this child comes in into your classroom, you know, and she may not have eaten that night, you know, or that little mm-hmm. boy just witnessed his mother being punched in the face literally because I saw, you know, the aftermath of her being attacked, you know, I mean, in terms of, like, her, her um, the impact that it had on her physically, bruises and such, you know, and so to witness that and then you expect, um, you know, these again, these children to come in school and be be attentive, no, right, they're triggered. Right, they are in uh, the hyper flight, right? They're hypervigilant in the moment. You know, they're completely feeling uh, powerless and vulnerable. So mo- most of the time they're probably in a disassociative state. And, and, yeah, they're extremely vulnerable to trigger. So if you raise your voice, and it may sound like the guy who hit this child's mother, this boy will react, right? Or, or um, you know, for the, for the child who's in this home that's extremely overcrowded, you know, and you expect, you know, her to maybe huddle in a group. I mean, she may react. Um, it, it, her reaction may look inappropriate, but it's very, really appropriate in terms of her her context. You know, we we call that maladaptive behaviors. So when they're not in the setting that's extremely traumatic, um, the behavior in that in the traumatic uh, setting, the behaviors look normal, right, in terms of survival. But if they're out of the setting, then it looks abnormal. And so I'll, I'll end that in that in terms of black children. Um, I I'm, I see that black children don't get to be traumatized, right? Like they don't they don't get to be, be they don't even get to be labeled as traumatized. They don't get to be labeled as as hurt, you know, as, as as children who actually feel and should be tended for. That's what I see consistently, and that's how the system responds. Which is why you know in the example that uh, was it Ann I believe or was it Trina when she gave of her experience in the court witnessing. You know, this this child who didn't have a mother, you know, and her sister was unable to care for her, um, there was from what she described, I, I didn't I didn't sense any kind of empathy, you know, in the court system was, from the yeah. from the judge, from the attorney. There was no kind of empathy. Because black There was absolutely no empathy. There was none. Exactly. Which is why it none. Which was why it was so horrific to me to sit in that courtroom and see I had never sat in a juvenile courtroom before. 
And so just the visual of seeing the kids coming in in chains, of course, evoked images of, you know, slavery. Absolutely. Um, of course. And to see a young girl standing, I, I couldn't even imagine being that age standing there at, at 15. I, I There's no way I could have stood there and and kept my bearings, you know. Right. Someone is making a decision for you. And, again, her mother died. I don't even right. care when her mother died. Her mother could die, could have died in childbirth. Her mother died. Right. That is traumatic right. in itself. So, no, so there was no it. empathy at all. Exactly. None whatsoever. So, again, so, exactly. No, absolutely. And I'll just that in my personal experience, I was that girl, too. I mean, I didn't go before a court, but I experienced other loss. And, like, you had your sisters. I had older brothers. And so that's how I'm sure I was spared from going into the system myself. So I can totally identify and relate. No, thank you so much for sharing that. You know, I'm always the one who looks to the past to help define and understand the present. So I think it is both painful but beautiful to invoke the imagery of slavery. I have, in fact, probably spent more time than I'm willing to admit in courthouses, jails, and juvenile facilities. And what always strikes me is when I'm in the courthouse, the imagery of the master sitting at the bench, the overseer serving as defense and legislate or defense and prosecutor, and the person who is on trial as the slave. And when you look at the marble and you look at the history, you realize that life is not a linear line, but it's actually a it's an onion, and we're always peeling back the layers. And so I'm going to turn it over to Trina right now to peel back some additional layers for us to understand the impact of trauma and violence against young black and brown girls. Yeah, thank you, Q. Um, I just had a couple quick points to make because I know we also have someone, um, a caller. And um, so very quickly, I, I want to... Um, just make a point of talking about the other dynamic that we have here when we talk about the depression and trauma is um, how resistant um, some communities of color are to recognizing mental health issues um, that we actually uh, don't acknowledge that we acknowledge it as weak or mm -hmm. things of that nature. So that contributes to it as well. It contributes to the overcompensation. Uh, and then the other thing, um, the the contrast that you were drawing earlier, Q, to how officers will treat um, white individuals, white young girls who are having the same symptoms differently than people of color. And that's one of the things that disturbs me the most is the extent to which in so many of these issues, this issue is met as well as many others that we're facing in our country right now, the extent to which people have deemed certain classes, whole groups of individuals as disposable mm -hmm. don't matter. You know, so you can you can just push them out of school. You're really actually nailing um, their coffin shut if you shut the door to education, mm -hmm. and then what that pushes them into a whole different trajectory of their life, and there is just like like Ange was talking about and like you were talking about, Liz, the lack of empathy and the lack of actually seeing these young girls as girls. Absolutely. As 
future leaders as people who are going, that we're going to turn our our future over to. And that is really uh, disturbing to me. And one thing, I'm, as you all know, I have to sign off in a minute, um, but I do want to, I hope that there will be some time in the in the show because I'm, as a life coach, I'm always looking for what's what's the good what's the good news or what can we do, what can we do about it. So that's one thing I hope that we'll be able to focus on today. Absolutely, we're definitely going to focus um, in the latter part of the discussion on actions that we can take that aren't necessarily going to be grounded in the foundation nonprofit industrial complex that requires us to come up with evidence-based practices in order to engage with young people as if they're human because that's all they are. They're just young people that need to be spoken to and be treated as the whole important people that they are, actually the backbone of our future, right, because we are once again going to turn to women of color to save us from ourselves. Um, but before we get to that, we're going to take a call, and hopefully I will pull this off well, and we will get her on the line. So please give me a moment while I play with technology. And 443, are you on the line? I'm well, Carrie. This is uh, Tara Andrews Huffman calling in. How are you doing? I am fine, and this is Q, and I'm so glad to have you on the line, Tara. Um, I can speak to your background also. I feel like I know you quite well, but I think that um, some people need no introduction because their flyness speaks for itself, and I think you're one of those individuals, so I will allow you to share with no further introduction. Just thank you for joining us, Tara. Thank you so much for um, having me. Um, I wasn't having been able to listen to the whole discussion, but the part that I did hear, um, particularly the last part, I just wanted to raise it or, or emphasize it if it's already been raised um, in the previous discussion uh, to follow up on uh, the fact that when we do think of black and brown girls, um, people talk about the circle of concern. Um, and sort of who's in and who's out of your circle of concern and people who are like you, um, who believe as you do, who behave as you do, who sort of live up to whatever your standards and your values are. Um, those are the people that you put within your circle of concern, but anyone who doesn't check off the boxes that you have in your head uh, about how someone should be, how someone should look, how someone should act, um, that those persons are the other and they're outside of your circle of concern. And so then your implicit bias kicks in to the point where you don't even see the other person or when you see them, you see them as something other, something strange, something weird, and often that also translates into something less than and something dangerous, something to be feared, something to be controlled, something to be oppressed. Um, and I am increasingly... Um, aware of the fact that uh, particularly when adults um, perceive uh, black and brown girls, they perceive them very differently than they perceive um, white girls. So, for instance, if a white girl um, pushes back on something her teacher or her professor says, she's seen as curious, she's seen as inquisitive, she's seen as engaging in intellectual debate. Um, But if a black or brown girl does the exact same thing, she is at best sassy, at worst combative. Um, 
a white girl um, comes up, you know, it, it shows up at school emotionally distraught. She's immediately drawn into the circle of concern. If a black or brown girl shows up at school emotionally distraught, um, she's told to get it together. Um, you know, Absolutely. you're in class now. You need to focus. You need to study. And so you need to just leave that stuff at home because we don't have time for that here, so on and so forth. And so um, uh, the part of the reason, um, you know, that, that we are seeing what we see today and that black and brown girls are getting the treatment that they get that we that they've received for years, for decades, for centuries, and even today is because they've always we we as black and brown women and girls have always been seen as different, other, exotic, um, strange, weird, um, and and all of that then translates into something to either be um, held up to some ridiculous standard that we can never meet or something to be feared and therefore controlled in some way um, because, you know, you never know what you're going to get um, when one of us walks into the room. No, absolutely. I think that the, that that depiction, um, that description of how America um, and really throughout the world, how our bodies are treated, how dehumanized we are is actually quite accurate. Um, either we are something that is put on such a high pedestal we could never meet it, um, or we're something to be exploited, or we're something um, whereby they have to exercise dominion and control over us. I actually um, attended a talk that I ended up having to hijack, but part of it was that I had to remind them that in this country not everyone was considered human, that some of us were considered property. And the fact that we were considered property at the inception of this country and this country has never really let go of that is part of the reason why when people of color engage in acts of violence because they're striking back against the oppressor in truly oppressive structures and systems, there is more anger about the destruction of property than there is about the treatment of people of color. And that continues to manifest in the classroom when we talk about, for example, the young woman who was trying a science project and exploded some kind of bottle trying to figure out about compression in science, but it wasn't an encouragement of her curiosity but criminalization of her behavior, right, because she can't be naturally curious and wanting to explore science. Rather, she must be engaging in some kind of negative social behavior that they couldn't control. So even in thinking about all of that and all of the different kinds of ways our bodies are dehumanized, how we're treated as bodies and not people, um, that still, still we're here today, right? Like, still, despite all of the ways in which this country has shown us that they do not value or appreciate us except in an instance of exploitation, we are still making lemonade out of lemon, right, to paraphrase Beyonce. So we have still, within the confines and the structures that have been put in place, we have still figured out ways to blossom. We have still figured out ways to engage with our sisters and help them navigate a hostile world, whether it's in the classroom, whether it's in the juvenile detention center, whether it's in the placement center, whether it's on the street. So 
Um, as we are nearing the end of this conversation, I would like to explore a little bit about what we know actually works. And I would also like to remind our listeners that they can feel free to call in and ask any of us a question at 619-924-0980. So on that happy note, I'd like to explore um, with you all what do we know works? How do we, you know, use our our brains and our talents and our capacities to save our sisters in this hostile, toxic world? So this is Liz, and so Go I'll, ahead, I'll start Liz. by saying, yeah. So I, I'll start by saying we know for sure that having safe spaces for girls work, and these spaces look like where these girls are affirmed, that they um, are empowered that they're giving uh, the critical uh, skills, uh, love, affection, nurture, attention, um, exposure, resources to, to really thrive um, in their own unique way and, you know, just most fundamentally as a human being, right? And it also looks like we're giving them a space to really have their own voices and talents uh, nurtured and developed. So that is um, for sure, you know, uh, what that looks like. I mean, you know, a safe space is definitely something that works. And so what it and how it looks detention is um again having these uh you know, it, it can look like programs that do everything that I just described in terms of detention. It can look like, you know, um other women stepping up or healthy people stepping up and, and mentoring girls who are in detention. Uh so it, it looks like maybe sending girls letters. Uh it looks like those things. And I think a clear example of that is what we're seeing now with uh Brescia Meadows and just how she has gotten national support um, and overwhelming support um, from folk who, who are empathizing with her uh, as, a, as a victim and survivor of domestic violence, um, as a girl who's currently incarcerated. Great, uh, this is you. Tara. I would also like to say that in addition to all of those things, it also looks like um, helping girls uh, embrace their own voice and teach them how to use it um, in a very – um, productive way, uh, and again, not trying to shape what the voice should look like and sound like, but helping them find their own voice and figure out how they express themselves. And by voice, I don't necessarily mean speaking. Their voice may be art. Their voice may be dance. Their voice may be writing. Um, their voice may be in the legal arena. Uh, their voice may be in the state hall or in city hall. Um, their voice may be through sports. Um, because they're extremely gifted athletically, whatever it is that they do well um, and that they want to learn how to do even better, teaching them that that is a way they show up in the world and teaching them how to play to that um, and how to stand up for themselves against anyone who would, um, you know, dare to try to dismiss that, um, downplay it, criticize it, judge it, um, as not feminine, not girly, uh, not this, not that. But, uh, you know, they can be who they are. So if they want to be a girly girl, they get to be a girly girl. Um, if they want to be a tomboy, they get to be tomboy. If they want to be gender nonconforming, that's what they get to be. They get, they get to decide. Um, and they get yeah. to explore. Um, because, yeah. you know, they may not know exactly. So they get to experiment over here and experiment over there. And the more they're exposed to um, things and the more they sort of engage the world, then they find their space um, as opposed to someone trying to constrict them to take on 
any particular form or fashion? I think that's great. One of the things that I often find myself leading off with when I am engaging with system-involved youth, particularly um, girls of color, um, and I deal with young people who, as Liz mentioned, um, cross systems or multi-systemic youth, is I often lead off a discussion by telling them that there is nothing wrong with you. Mm. that you are perfect the way you are. And so just affirming their perfection in and of itself and then going into whatever issues they want to talk about um, often is a revelation for them because they never hear. You are perfect the way you are. There is nothing wrong with you. Yeah, they've probably Mm. been told so many times by parents, peers, teachers, anyone in law enforcement that, you know, something's wrong with you. What is wrong with you? Why are you acting mm-hmm. that way? Why are you doing this? Why mm-hmm. are you being that way? Why Why is your hair this way? Why is, you know, why are you walking that way? Why are you loud? Why are you talking on, you know, the metro? And why, you know, right. why are you standing there, you know, doing whatever, whatever juveniles do because they're young and silly sometimes, whatever you do, whatever it is that you're doing, Enough people have told you that what, whatever you're doing is wrong. And so coming in a place where you're just telling them you're, nothing's wrong with you. <laughs> no, and I don't. Nothing's wrong with you. No, nothing's wrong. And I don't even go into the science of adolescent brain development because in some ways that's <laughs> irrelevant to the conversation, right? Like we, like I know, and maybe some of you all know that the brain doesn't stop developing until 25 and you have all kinds of things that are happening and flight or flight. and What's the excuse with so, over 45 then? He, well... We can have that at the next call. I can break that down for you real quick on the next call. But we are not going to allow patriarchy and orange Cheeto to infect the discussion that's all about our black and brown sisters, right? Because that's how insidious patriarchy is. That's how insidious misogynoir is, right? Like the whole intersection of it all. Um, But like I said, you know, I always try to start the conversation with there's nothing wrong with you, um, which is often shocking to both the young people and perhaps the adults that are in the room because they even are coming at the, oh, you have trauma, so we have to fix that. Or as Ange said, you know, you're too loud, you're too boisterous, um, whereas you should be free and happy that you're comfortable expressing yourself or you're too tense, or why is your hair that way? Why why is your hair blue, but, you know, Shelly Osbourne can have purple hair and it's seen as a fashion trend, you know? In so many ways, um, we begin to indoctrinate young women into young women of color into disappearing their value as it is appropriated and exploited by people who don't look like them. So, haha, I'm going to bring it back down. So I'm going to ask you all, to talk a little bit more about how you interact with the girls once you, you once you start that. So you talked about a safe space, right? You talked about affirming them, right? So that's all great, but that's when they're in the room with you. And you can't be with them 24-7 as much as we would want to be. At some point, we have to give them tools in order to go out and navigate the hostile world. So after creating the safe space, after creating that self-affirming space where they know that they at least have one corner of the world where no one is going to hate on them, what additional tools do you give them or do you help them develop so that they can go forth and feel comfortable 
at least beginning to engage with people who do not recognize the beauty and the wholeness within them that we see. Yes. So this is Liz. I really believe in the power of, uh, you know, equipping our girls with, with the uh, tools to really define themselves for themselves. And um, like you said, Q, I mean, really um, and rooting that in the belief that they are enough, that they are perfect as they are. You know, I'll also add, um, just to jump back to, you know, another thing that works that we could do, uh, really holding these systems accountable. And there are a ton of movements right now um, that's doing that. So I think of an organization called Every Black Girl in South Carolina, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the state where, where the girl was thrown to the, the ground um, from the desk. Like they're at the forefront in terms of um, really resisting uh, school resource officers in school. Right, um, and it it could also look like you know us holding the court system accountable, holding schools accountable, um, especially schools. And there's data out now where we could look at the suspension and, and expulsion rates. Right, so what would it look like if we went and really mobilized at these particular schools, um, and 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 really bringing the girls with us, or at least um, highlighting their voices and stories, um, and lifting up uh, and centering their experiences you know, as we resist in this way. Great. It sounds to me like you're telling us all that it's time for us to get local and engage. Definitely get local. And it looks so, it looks different in so many ways. So I say find the way that you want to get engaged and get out there. While also, Great. right, um, I was just lastly, while also, um, you know, uh, instilling tools in our girls. And, and for me, I offer uh, again, building up their sense of self-worth, self-esteem, giving them tools to uh, to really define themselves for themselves. Great. Thank you. I love the paraphrase of Sister Audrey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, Tara, do you have anything to add? I would say two things. One, um, you know, after you give them a safe space, um, give them a new tape or recording that they play in their head um, so that, um, you I know, to um, Angie's point, you know, they've been told you're wrong. There's something wrong with you. This that that tape is that recorder is playing a recorder recording, excuse me, in their head. So you got to change the recording. So give them something else to play in their head, something positive and encouraging, so that when they leave that safe place and they start to encounter um, the same biased, uh, discriminatory, discriminatory behavior. Instead of reverting back to the old recording, they've got this new recording playing in their head that may begin to sort of shape the way they start engaging the world differently and dealing with people differently who come at them disrespectfully. Um, I would also say it also means, um, of course, you know, mentoring and coaching, yes, but it also means hiring these girls, <laughs> putting yeah. them in internships. In yes. your office, in yes. your organization, um, yes. uh, you know, I, I don't care if you have to hire him at the most entry-level position, hire her, bring her yes. into a space that's professional, bring her into a space that's artistic, bring her into a space that's all about innovation and venture so she can see things and hear things and be around other women who are doing this because, again, um, young people, you know, do mm -hmm. learn best by modeling. And so if something negative or not supportive and affirming has been modeled in front of them, give them whole – you've got to give them new models. You've got to give them new models that they can begin to absorb and take in and, and then, as we said, and then make some choices about who they want to be and how they want to show up in the world. 
Very good points. Very good points, Liz and Tara. Um, you know, we we as adult women, we have our own voices, right, in our heads telling us what we can't do, what we shouldn't do, where we should go, who we should be, how we should be. Um, imagine, you know, I can't remember 16 very much, <laughs> but uh, I know that there were voices in my head talking about, you know, body shaming, and it's just worse now because we have social media. You know, we didn't have cell phones and Facebook and Instagram and all of these uh, social media platforms when I was growing up. I can only imagine, you know, what these young people are going through and the bullying and and just all of the things that happen to them on a day-to-day basis and all of those voices in their heads. So I appreciate what both of you said, um, the safe space and, and, and just giving them opportunities to to become the women that we know they can become because we went through some of the same things that they went through and here we are. No, I think that's really beautiful because, it, you know, Ange took me back to thinking about what I heard. And the tape that was in my head, and I have to admit that I I was raised by a pretty strident feminist. And so the words that my tape was always, there's nothing that a man can do that I can't. Um, And the tape that I heard was that you're a fighter. And so basically you're going to go out there and you're going to break the world because they're just going to conform to you, which I am very fortunate to um, have had. But I also recognize that many of my peers did not hear the same thing growing up, and they did not understand why I was the one who was arguing with everyone because I already knew that I had someone that had my back. And so I guess part of what drives me is to make sure that I have the back of these young women because I know the value of having someone tell me there's nothing that a man can do that you can't. Um, So... So before, um, before yeah. we let our guests actually have the last word, I'm right. just going to uh, talk a little bit about our next show and uh, let everyone know how they can get in touch with us. Our next show will be on Thursday, March 16th at 7 p.m., and it is tentatively titled Under Siege, Regressive Immigration Tactics. As you know, we are under siege, and we will be having that discussion. Uh, you can find the Revolutionary Sisters of the Diaspora in various places. You can email us at sisters, S-I-S-T-A-S, of diaspora at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at Sisters Diaspora. Our Twitter handle is at Sisters Diaspora. And our Facebook is facebook.com forward slash Sisters Diaspora. So if you put in Sisters Diaspora, you'll, you'll find us. I want to thank uh, Tara and Liz for calling in today, and I will turn it back over to Q and close us out and let our guests. Yes, absolutely. I'd like to ask our guests to share some parting words with us, but before I do that, I just want to thank you both for helping us have a very rich and informative discussion. Um, and I'll leave it at that because I'll I'll do my closeout after you go, and I promise I won't go too long. So. First, Liz, then Tara, thank you so much. Yeah, so, ladies, thank you. I'm just really um, honored and everything to be on the conversation, um, to be in this conversation with such brilliant black women. Boom. Um, Holla. Look, holla. You know, so in closing, um, 
you know, I, I am so clear about how valuable, like you are, how valuable black girls are, you know, and, and to everyone listening, I say get involved. Um, and, and, and really, and there's a ton of people doing the work, and so even if getting involved looks like supporting the folk who are already doing the work. And so I really want to, again, highlight an organization that's really working to specifically address a school push-out for black girls called Every Black Girl. Um, the executive director is Vivian Anderson. Um, she's currently located in South Carolina, but she's doing a lot of speaking along with, you know, uh, Monique Morris um, and, and Kimberly Crenshaw and all the pioneers who have actually bust the door wide open in terms of, of this conversation. But we are losing our girls. Um, and and we cannot afford to. So please, please, please get involved. Thank you. Thank you. And Tara? Um, I would say, um, first of all, uh, thank you for having me and and allowing me to contribute to this conversation. And I I, I think I would speak to women like who are on the show right now and who are listening to the show that say, if you are fiercely for black girls, then be so unapologetically <laughs> um, and don't don't be backed up or backed down by anyone or anything because, again, in this new world order that we entered on January the 20th, I think we're going to need fierce sisters um, more than ever to um, protect those um, who are still not in a position to protect themselves until they are in a position to stand up and fight alongside of us so that we can multiply our numbers and multiply our ranks. Um, more and more, because we're going to we're, we're going to need each other, and um, the world needs us as well. Thank you so much, Tara. And to piggyback on both of your statements, I would say that the world can't survive without us. Um, mm-hmm. But for the labor, the empathy, and the beauty of Black and Brown women, I don't know where this country would be. Um, And so no matter how much history has shown us that this country is quick to both disappear and revile us at the same time, we are not going anywhere. We are here. Our blood feeds the soil that enriches this country. And so the only thing I think we have to do is figure out how we can continue to support our sisters in the struggle, because we've survived. Um, If we have managed to make it on this call and listen to this call, then that means that we have in many ways mastered the art of code switching, and we can move through multiple worlds at the same time. And until we can force this trajectory of this country to bend towards justice, we have to do our best to help our sisters both survive and learn how to code switch so that they can take up the mantle and they can continue the fight for us. The world changed on November 8th when um, this country threw us under the bus. And for the past month, we've seen what it means for being thrown under the bus to manifest in chaos. And so right now we just have to batten down the hatches, get local, protect our community, and protect our sisters because they need us now more than ever. And remember the words of my mother. There is nothing that a man can do that we cannot. And we have to tell that to our sisters whenever and however many times they have to hear it so that they can have a new tape in their head. 
And on that happy note, Revolutionary Sisters of the Diaspora wish you a pleasant night. This is Q, the lovable, hungable, angry black woman, and I look forward to talking to you in another month. Otherwise, the struggle continues. Stay black, stay brown, stay militant, stay revolutionary. Good night. Good night. Got it. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.